edition of With All Due Respect. Strong opinions on politics, life, and entertainment. No, 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 no. Look, I, I don't want to be put on hold. I've already been on hold twice. I've left messages for the manager. I've asked employees. Nobody seems to have an answer to this very critical problem. I know you're just the produce manager, but you have to answer me. Why does my neighborhood car's grocery store not stock a single box of caramel corn, but Fred Meyer, just a half mile away, has both fiddle-faddle and crunch-a-munch? How is it possible that you stock 423 different varieties of Oral Redenbacher, but not one box of Fiddle Faddle or Crunch a Munch? Hey, Andrew, the show's starting. Hey, look, I'm sorry, I need to go. Welcome to another episode of With All Due Respect, the podcast that will gladly take a hamburger today and pay you for it on Tuesday. Greetings, I am your host, Andrew Halcrow, for this thrill ride. With me, as always, is my chief collaborator, Mr. Van Sanders. Mr. Sanders, what's the good word? Uh, you know, full-time work and freelance on the side. The Bassmobile is done. Yes, I saw the photos of the giant bass project we've talked about and you just completed in the Abu Dhabi lab. Impressive to say the least, my friend. Are, are those pictures on your website? Yeah, there's one picture and it links to more. Totally. Excellent. And to our listeners, we will hook you up with Van's website at the end of the show so you can see the product of his imagination and his creativity. As always, I'd like to thank the Anchorage Daily News for hosting this podcast on their website and remind listeners that the very strong opinions you hear on this podcast are mine and mine alone and in no way, shape, or form represent the opinions of the Anchorage Daily News or their employees. Today on With All Due Respect, we give you everything we got, politics, life, and entertainment. In politics, we dive deep into the abyss of the Alaska Legislature Special Session and make the determination that it's really not that special. We'll take your hand, of course, with your permission, and guide you through the Special Session Amusement Park while explaining exactly what the governor's proposal will do to the future of Alaska's economy. In life, we revisit our discussion last week about the current out-migration patterns in Alaska, and we'll get more in-depth about who and why Alaska is losing a core demographic that will have significant economic effects on Alaska's economy. In entertainment, we take Judd Nelson's character John Bender in the movie The Breakfast Club, and we contrast him with Lee Iacocca to discover while, yes, screws fall out all the time because it is an imperfect world, Lee Iacocca's Ford Pinto was not one of those examples. And finally, in closing comments, it's time for Alaska's business community and Alaska's business groups to step up and speak out. Alaska's economy is heading in the wrong direction. We are not investing in ourselves. We're hemorrhaging core demographics. Our political leadership is wanting, and the proposals on the table today in Juneau will accelerate the decline of Alaska's future economy. So it's time to invoke the old saying, just don't stand there, man. Say something, damn it. All of this on today's With All Due Respect. So let's kick it off by talking some politics. Politics. And now, for some politics. Last week, the Alaska legislature convened their third special session in three months to address Governor Mike Dunleavy's constitutional amendments he has proposed. Look, it's the opinion of the host that if it's your third special session in three months, they ain't that special. 
In fact, it's a good indication that something is definitely wrong with the legislative process. So today we're going to explain step by step what some of these constitutional amendments taken in context means to Alaska's future economy. The first constitutional amendment Governor Dunleavy is suggesting would place the dividend in the Constitution. Alaskans are being asked to enshrine a $2,400 annual dividend in the Constitution. However, the cost of the proposal will create budget deficits of $1 billion a year. Why? Because to fund a $2,400 dividend, you need to overdraw the account by $3 billion, and then you need to find a way to fill the gap. Which means the same lawmakers who haven't been able to find $50 million in new revenue will have to find a way to raise billions in new revenue to pay these large dividends. Second, Alaskans are being asked to support a constitutional spending cap. Currently, the state of Alaska adjusted for inflation is spending at 1975 levels. That was before oil was flowing in the pipeline. Alaska is spending at 1975 levels while trying to address 2021 problems. When you look around and see some of the perennial challenges Alaska faces, most of them are due to a lack of targeted, consistent investments by state government. Now, a constitutional spending limit might be needed in a state with a growing tax burden, but Alaska is not the case. Far from it. Alaska's tax burden is the lowest in the country. I mean, think about this. Alaska has the highest cost of living in the country, while at the same time, we host the lowest tax burden in the country. And at the same time, state government is spending at 1975 levels. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no public policy or economic need for a constitutional spending limit. This is a pure political gimmick. And to prove to you how dangerous this gimmick is and could be to the future of Alaska, this proposal would limit spending immediately after the same proponents, including Governor Dunleavy, have asked you to guarantee over $2 billion in annual spending a year by putting the dividend in the Constitution. The third constitutional amendment, Alaskans are being asked to amend the Constitution to require voter approval for any new taxes. Policymakers, including Governor Dunleavy, are wont to point to Colorado as the state that restricts taxes to a vote of the people. Let's take a look at that. In 1992, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights imposed financial restraints on state and local governments in Colorado. It also established a spending cap limiting the growth of government revenue to the increase in population. However, to get around the limits, Colorado lawmakers over the years have resorted to complicated workarounds to raise money without calling it a tax and to borrow money without calling it a bond. For example, if you need additional revenue, just raise fees instead of levying taxes. If you need to borrow money for government capital projects, you just borrow against the equity of a government building, so you're not issuing debt. And then to further complicate matters, in the year 2000, Colorado voters adopted a constitutional amendment to increase annual funding to their schools by the cost of living index. So with a state spending cap, but yet a mandate by voters to spend more every year than the spending cap allows... Colorado lawmakers have had no choice but to avoid their school funding obligations entirely by creating annual IOUs, which today sits at $830 million due to Colorado public schools. In fact, one public policy expert said Colorado state lawmakers have been, quote, paralyzed by the question of how to untangle the conflicting constitutional pressures that seem to create financial crisis in both good times and bad. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Alaska will be in the exact same situation. We are going to agree to enshrine billions in annual debt into the state constitution vis-a-vis the dividend, while at the same time limiting lawmakers' ability to pay for that debt. So the combination of these three constitutional amendments would have the following effects. 
First, we commit to increasing spending by paying Alaskans $2,500 per year forever, which would create billions in budget deficits. Second, we restrict future spending to pay for those deficits we've just created. Third, we mandate a vote of the people before any new taxes are adopted to help diversify the way Alaska pays for those deficits we've just voted to incur. So to put these three constitutional amendments all together, we increase spending forever, we limit spending forever, and we limit our ability to pay for spending forever. Just a side note to the governor and lawmakers supportive of these amendments. Look, if you're all so anxious to give up the legislature's constitutional authority, how about a constitutional amendment that might actually improve the legislature? How about proposing a constitutional amendment that most of us would jump to support? How about a constitutional amendment mandating term limits? Seriously, if you feel the legislative system is so broken in your hands, and as a result, you're willing to limit the legislature's basic constitutional responsibilities, how about limiting the time you're allowed to spend on the job collecting a paycheck? In order to make this entire thing work and try and show future budget deficits are manageable, Governor Dunleavy has proposed increased spending from the Alaska Permanent Fund to cover the deficit in the meantime. Lawmakers are calling this $3 billion in a cash bridge. However, this is a financial bridge to nowhere. Rosy projections provided by the Dunleavy administration bordering on complete fantasy indicate the deficit would shrink and vanish in subsequent years as oil prices and production rise. As part of these rosy projections, 160,000 barrels per day from Willow was part of the rosy picture factored in to this economic forecast. And we all saw in the press last week the court voided the project's entire permits, which puts the permits at risk, which puts the 160,000 barrels a day that we're counting on to help fill the gap at risk. Ladies and gentlemen, the governor's economic projections to cover the $3 billion deficit are built on sand and hope. Ladies and gentlemen, this is $3 billion worth of classic J. Wellington Wimpy. Yo, Van, hit me up with a curriculum vitae of J. Wellington. Yes, uh, J. Wellington Wimpy, generally referred to as Wimpy, is one of the characters in the comic strip Popeye. A recurring joke involves Wimpy's attempts to con other patrons of the diner owned by Rough House into buying his meal for him. His best-known catchphrase started in 1931 as, Cook me up a hamburger, I'll pay you Tuesday. In 1932, this then became the famous, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And of course, we all know how Wimpy got away with this. He never came back on Tuesdays. Ladies and gentlemen, if policymakers believe Wimpy is coming back on Tuesday to cover $3 billion in deficits, he ain't. Governor Mike Dunleavy has already stated he won't support revenue measures to pay for his plan until lawmakers give him the amendments he wants now first. The $3 billion bridge loan proposed by Governor Dunleavy is not only a fiscal bridge constructed on unrealistic economic projections based on exaggerated future economic growth, but it's also a fiscal bridge to billions in structural budget deficits that will cripple what exists of Alaska's future economy. Meanwhile, come Tuesday, Alaskans will be left holding the bill for a $3 billion hamburger with no sign of Wimpy. And now, let's talk about life. Let's talk about life. 
All right, let's talk some life. In life, I'm going to take a deeper dive into the discussion we had last episode about the growing out migration patterns, where 25 to 64-year-olds, the core of the population that drives Alaska's economy, have been leaving the state. First, let's take a look at current labor data as of July 2021. In July 2021, job count was up 5.8% from July 2020. That's an increase of almost 18,000 jobs, but still 30,000 jobs below where we were at the same time in July of 2019. The industry hit the hardest last year, grew the most, makes sense, but few have reached their pre-pandemic levels. Leisure and hospitality was up over 5,000 jobs, but remained almost 11,000 jobs below July of 2019. Trade, transportation, and utilities gained 5,200 jobs over the year, but was still 6,000 below 2019. In fact, oil and gas was the only major industry with fewer jobs this July than a year ago. The industry lost more than 4,000 jobs during 2020, falling to as low as 6,100 for full-time employment, which represents the lowest level of oil and gas employment in decades. One of the biggest economic questions for the state, especially considering lawmakers today are considering increasing spending by $2 billion while depending on oil and gas projections to fill that gap, a big economic question is when are these jobs going to return? Over the last eight years, with current out-migration and aging trends, Alaska's economy could be short 50,000 workers in the next 10 years. The facts surrounding Alaska's changing demographics are cause for concern for everyone. Alaska's population is growing older faster than the rest of the country. Why? Because the group that's been retiring the last 20 years hasn't been baby boomers. It's been the pre-World War II generation. In the 1950s, Alaska's population doubled in a decade of Cold War military bases. Between 1975 and 1984, during both the pipeline construction and the oil boom, Alaskans had kids. Lots and lots of kids. Side note, the fact that Alaska had a population boom between 1975 and 1985 should surprise absolutely no one. I mean, come on, my friends. Think about the music of that era. Barry White, Al Green, Marvin Gaye. It ain't no wonder why Alaskans were saying, let's get it on. So, after that brutal impression of Marvin Gaye, Alaska reached the height of its natural increase in population in 1985. However, since then, the natural increase in population has declined. I mean, it's gone down and then it's gone back up a little bit, but it's gone down. But overall, there's been a decline since 1985. This coupled with the current out-migration trends means that for the first time in Alaska's history, Alaska has had net out-migration for eight consecutive years. Today, not only is Alaska suffering from a decline on natural increases, but we are failing to attract younger residents while at the same time we are losing more retirees. Why? Well, because Alaska's population trends have largely followed Alaska's boom and bust cycles, increasing in boom years, decreasing in recession years, like the oil bust in the 80s or the base closures in the 90s. But today, it might be a little more nuanced. Let me paint a familiar scenario that many of us have either seen or experienced personally. Let's say mom and dad arrived in Alaska in the 50s or 60s. Mom and dad have kids. Their kids have grandkids. Mom and dad stay in Alaska to be close to their grandkids. As a side note, remember about 10 years ago when the biggest real estate concern was that older Alaskans weren't turning over their homes, they weren't selling their homes as they had been, causing a tightness in the inventory? 
Well, this was part of these complicated reasons. I mean, let's face it, Alaska's winters are getting more moderate that allow our parents to stay here. Our parents are living longer and more independently, and they want to be near their grandkids, right? Okay, moving on. So while the grandparents get older and then eventually pass, their grandkids have now grown up and are either not returning or just simply moving out of Alaska. In response, the parents, who are close to retirement, eventually move out of Alaska to be near their kids. In the process, Alaska loses two generations who happen to be in the 25 to 64-year-old demographic, which is exactly the core demographic Alaska has been losing for the last eight years. It's more nuanced than that, but that's the end result. For eight years, we've had a consistent pattern of outmigration. For eight years, we've consistently failed to retain the core of our workforce. So what are we doing in this ninth year to stem the tide of the brain drain? What are we doing in this ninth year to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to keep the next generations of Alaskans in Alaska? Governor Mike Dunleavy and minority Republican lawmakers have ignored the demands to fund both high school college scholarships that have already been promised and whammy funds that have also already been promised. And if you don't know what whammy is, it funds Alaskans' access to high-quality regional medical schools, and then those doctors come back and do service in Alaska. Ladies and gentlemen, the outmigration is one of Alaska's growing threats to Alaska's future economy. It's an issue that demands immediate attention from policymakers. And at the very, very least, it deserves policymakers to stop playing politics with higher education funding, especially since higher educated Alaskans are leaving the state in higher numbers. Ladies and gentlemen, if we don't start to begin to pay attention to the serious outmigration patterns in Alaska, we are going to be left with a more unskilled workforce and fewer of them. And now, entertainment. Entertainment. All right, let's talk some entertainment. In 1967, a hard-charging Ford Motor Company executive named Lee Iacocca convinced his bosses that Ford was in danger of missing out on the subcompact car market. Due to the explosive popularity of the Volkswagen Beetle and other small imports, Iacocca felt that Ford would permanently surrender the subcompact segment of the market if they didn't compete. So Iacocca gathered his engineers together and demanded they produce a car that would be no more than 2,000 pounds and cost no more than $2,000. And not just that. He wanted the car completed and in the showroom within 26 months. Normally, design to production takes 43 months, but the new Ford Pinto, under pressure from Iacocca, was rushed into production in just 26 months. Later, a NASA safety engineer who reviewed the Ford Pinto case would say, quote, The release of design to production for the Ford Pinto was the most reprehensible in the history of American engineering. So what went wrong? Well, in order to meet the accelerated production schedule, Ford engineers tooled the production facility at the same time they were designing the car. This meant when problems were discovered, the factory tooling had already been developed, so modifications would mean costly production line changes. In September of 1970, the Ford Pinto was released to the public for sale. In promotional advertisements, the tagline for the new model was, Ford Pinto leaves you that warm feeling inside. In October 1970, just one month after the Ford Pinto showed up in dealer showrooms, Ford engineers discovered that the gas tank was prone to explosions when the car was struck from behind at speeds of anywhere from 20 to 30 miles per hour. Why was this happening? 
In order to keep the Pinto under 2,000 pounds and under the cost of $2,000, as demanded from Iacocca, engineers positioned the Pinto's gas tank behind the differential housing. But this meant, when struck from behind, even at low speeds, the gas tank would push up against the differential housing, and the four protruding bolts would puncture the gas tank, filling the vehicle with fumes, thus causing the vehicles to burst into flames. In April 1971, just months after engineers realized the Pinto had fatal safety flaws, Ford Motor Company issued an internal memo stating that the fix for the retool of the factory would cost $21 million. So they made a corporate decision not to retool the factory, thus continuing to produce cars they knew were unsafe. In September of 1971, just a year after the car's introduction and just months after Ford Motor Company decided to roll the dice with product safety, a woman and a 13-year-old boy pulled onto a Minneapolis freeway in her new Ford Pinto and was rear-ended at 28 miles per hour. The car quickly filled with gasoline fumes from the collision, erupting into flames, killing the woman and permanently disfiguring the boy. This event started a seven-year quest by Ford Motor Company to avoid fixing the gas tank problems on the Pinto by settling lawsuits out of court while they lobbied regulators to avoid being forced to recall and fix the Pinto's gas tanks. So, why did it take Ford Motor Company seven years to fix the problem? An internal company memo shows that Ford determined that the cost of retooling the plant was much higher than paying out damage claims for serious burns or death. The internal memo called... Fatalities associated with crash-induced fuel leakage fires, I mean, seriously, you can't get more specific than that, showed the cost of fixing the problem through recalls and factory retooling would have cost Ford Motor Company $137 million. However, simply ignoring the problem and continuing to pay out claims would cost the company only $50 million. So Ford Motor Company's cost-benefit analysis showed that the company would save $80 million by not fixing the Ford Pinot's gas tank. However, finally, in 1978, Ford's sins caught up with them. After a California jury awarded a huge settlement in a Pinto fire case, Ford Motor Company finally agreed to fix the gas tanks on the Pintos. Two years later, in 1980, Ford ceased production of the Pinto after three million cars had been built and sold in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Ford Pinto Case, A Study in Applied Ethics, Business, and Technology. It's edited by Douglas Birch and John Fielder. It checks in at 300 pages. Now, this book is not for everyone, but it is for those who appreciate a good study on business ethics. The chapters include discussions on the morality and ethics of the cost-benefit analysis, whistleblowing, product liability, the politics of business regulation, and the ethical responsibility of the engineers. Now, full disclosure, one of the reasons I was attracted to this book was my first car at age 16 was a 1978 Ford Pinto. It was a two-door silver sedan equipped with a Craig 8-track player I bought from Pay and Save and just about every accessory you can imagine from the old J.C. Whitney catalogs. It's the host's opinion that the Ford Pinto was an awesome car. However, the history of the Ford Motor Company as it relates to the production of the Pinto is as far from awesome as it can get. Once again, the book is called The Ford Pinot Case, A Study in Applied Ethics, Business, and Technology. It's available in paperback. And if you're interested in this book, I'd suggest picking up a used copy at Amazon Books. In closing comments, it's time for the business community to get involved. It's time for the business community to get involved in this public policy discussion now, right now. 
The suite of constitutional amendments proposed by Governor Dunleavy will further hasten the demise of Alaska's economy and continue to exacerbate the current out-migration crisis Alaska is facing. Alaska's demographics are changing right before our eyes. Transgenerational shifts are happening, weakening the employee and consumer base. Lack of economic opportunities are driving both young and older Alaskans away. Lack of commitment to the future is causing a rapid increase in the brain drain because we are doing little or nothing to compete to keep the next generation in Alaska. Today, at a time when we see those numbers smack in front of our faces and we look to see what the governor and legislature are doing about it, We see they are playing politics with higher education funding for high school graduates and medical students at a time when we need more Alaska college graduates to stay, at a time we need more young doctors to make Alaska home, at a time we need stronger economic growth. Policymakers are debating constitutional amendments which would create stifling budget deficits and restrict the state's ability to invest in itself. And we're going to continue the downhill slide that has led us to this point to eight consecutive years of out-migration. Look, it's time for the business community to step up and speak out. These are your neighbors. These are your customers. These are your employees. This is your shared responsibility. If business owners and business groups continue their silence, they'll be the ones facing the economic dangers, not lawmakers. They'll be the ones wondering what happened to their employees and to their customers and to the economic future of Alaska. Ladies and gentlemen, look at history, even cartoon history. Wimpy isn't coming back on Tuesday. So what's going to be your plan to cover the cost of his $3 billion hamburger? And there is the music, ladies and gentlemen, and you know what that means. I want to give a big shout out to Ralph Townsend, the director of ICER, who spent time with me on the phone this week explaining to me the generational shifts in population. The podcast appreciates you, Ralph. I appreciate you. Van, how about throwing us your website details? Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, if you visit abodabobrand.com, that's A-B-O-D-A-B-O-B-R-A-N-D.com, you can see a little bit more about what I do and uh, touch base with me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Van and I. Remember, our podcasts are new on Thursday, and we more than thank you for your time.